0: Hi, this is Amanda from Silicon Valley, California. Dusted is a Storywonk podcast. To show your support and for exclusive content, visit patreon.com slash storywonk. Thanks. Welcome to the show. I'm Alistair Stevens. And
1: I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is Dusted, your you never go wrong with a gift certificate for Hot Topic, Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. <laughs> what do
0: you get for the witch in your life who has everything? Exactly. A gift certificate to Hot Topic.
1: Any woman under 25, go for it. It'll be good.
0: <laughs> this week we are watching episode six of season five of Buffy the Vampire Slayer Family. And welcome back to both writing and directing duties. Mr. Joss Whedon.
1: I know. It makes it feel like this episode should be such a big deal. Because usually if he's doing both things, it's a season premiere or it's a season finale. So to have him doing both jobs just kind of on this random episode in the middle of the season feels a little bit like there's there's just an amount of weight on this episode that feels a little weird. Because it's kind of just a one-off episode.
0: And it is beautifully written, beautifully observed, beautifully characterized. But in the end... Maybe there's not much there. Maybe there's just not a great deal of substance to this episode.
1: Yeah, I have a theory about that that I'm going to bring up at the end of the discussion because I want to throw it out to the listeners and see what they think.
0: Well, all right, then let's get right right to it. (laughs) Previously on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Spike has a disquieting dream. Tara sabotages a spell. A monk tells Buffy about the key and Buffy bears the burden, we open our episode on Tara telling Willow a story about a lost and wayward kitty accompanied by some beautiful cinematography Of Miss Kitty Fantastico.
1: It is. And this was before we had, like, you know, the entire internet being nothing but cat videos. So this has been really... The year 2000,
0: a lot of the internet was already cat videos.
1: (laughs) I guess it already was at that point, sure.
0: (laughs) Pour one out for Miss Kitty Fantastico, though. This is her last appearance in Buffy the Vampire Slayer.
1: Also sad. We
0: will mention her once more under relatively grim circumstances. Arguably grim circumstances, at least. But she is adorable. And we get from her, from Tara and Willow too, I should say, exactly what we need from this intro. Which Mm -hmm. is this dreamlike sense of serenity, compatibility, domesticity. It's really heartwarming to see these two people together.
1: It is. It's a really nice opening moment.
0: Willow is sleepy, but Tara is burning the candle at both ends to make herself useful and to keep up with her lady love. They snuggle together, Tara turns out the light, and then they give us the setup that we need for a fast cut to Buffy and Giles, who are talking in hushed tones about Dawn. Giles has some thoughts about sending Dawn away to protect her from glory, but Hank Summers is pretty much exactly the guy that we always thought he was.
1: In Spain with his secretary.
0: Living the cliche, (laughs) Buffy remembers how hard Dawn took the breakup of her parents, except that those memories aren't real. Which kind of prompts the question, given our discussion about the last episode of Buffy, were those memories real? Did Buffy cry for a week when her parents broke up?
1: Oh, my God. No, it's so heartbreaking to think that all of Buffy's memories and experience were pilfered and hijacked in order to create Dawn. May
0: have been. I mean, this is entirely speculative. Yeah. But now that I've opened that door, I can't stop peeking through it. (laughs) It's so sad, though. Because it makes a certain amount of sense. I think that if what Buffy is remembering happening to Dawn actually happened to her in the first instance, it may well be the case that she's more inclined toward empathy, that she's more inclined to be protective
1: no i mean true there is definitely something to that and you know a bunch of monks being able to completely create a realistic and emotionally you know resonant experience for a young girl they Mm -hmm. may have to you know borrow a little bit if
0: you've got all that raw material there and let's face it buffy has a lot of experiences (laughs) she and giles decide to keep the whole affair secret even from the other scoobies giles is concerned about glory who at that very moment Bursts from the wreckage in the warehouse, maybe just a little upset. It's a good glory moment, but I want to rewind and talk a little more about Buffy and Giles, because this too, much like Tara and Willow, is a really quiet, really intimate and beautifully observed scene.
1: Oh, it's wonderful. I love the way that Giles deals with Buffy. I love the way that he talks to her like an equal. He doesn't say, this is what we're going to do. He says, do you think we should do this? And when she says no, he's like, all right. You know, he yeah. he listens. He doesn't argue with her. He he just is taking her cues and really treating her as a partner, as an adult. And yeah. I love seeing that.
0: Oh, that's the respect. that's the foundation of their relationship. Yeah. I love it a great deal. It does raise one minor inconsistency, I suppose. One conspicuous omission from the episode. This is an episode about family. Mm -hmm. Where is Joyce?
1: Well, yeah, I think that's a big question. Although, really, it's about the family you make. It's about the family you find, as opposed to the family that you're born into. Yes.
0: It does feel as though she should be there, though perhaps it would be weirder to have Christine Sutherland in the episode, and not have her at the magic box at the end, right? For our big when we're stand really talking about Tara's found family, family. yeah. Mm-hmm. I love the entire idea of found family. I love the way that found family works within Whedon's really entire over. I was going to say within the Buffyverse, yeah. but honestly, it's all the shows. That, that yeah, Whedon absolutely. Has written, from from Buffy all the way up to Agents and including the, the Avengers. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that that is a great take on these personal and interpersonal relationships. This is one of my favorite examples, one of my favorite studies of that metaphor. It just maybe doesn't feel as though it's quite enough to carry the entire episode. Mm -hmm. We come through our credits, though, to the early 2000s jangly guitar idyll that is the UC Sunnydale campus. Buffy has marshaled the forces to help her move back out of her dorm right after moving in, (laughs) as Anya reminds us more than once. It makes more sense, all things considered, for her to live at home. This is Buffy's family. That's evident as we're watching them bicker and argue yes. <laughs> and fight and almost, almost get the job done. Except maybe for poor old Tagler and Dork Tara. Tomorrow is Tara's birthday and there's a party at the Bronze which will be a welcome break from all the weirdness of late. At the hospital, intern Dr. McCutie Ben changes out of his scrubs in the most ominous way possible. In the most ominous locker room possible. We haven't seen an ominous locker room this ominous since Sunnydale High.
1: No, but every locker room is just bad news. Nothing good happens in a locker room. (laughs) This is
0: absolutely the proof of that. Because as Dr. McCutie intern Ben is changing, he is approached from the shadows by a particularly tonguey demon. Luckily, that demon is grabbed by glory. And dragged away. At the magic box, Anya has found her place in the world, and it is, unexpectedly, money. Buffy and Xander arrive talking about the party and how important it is to Willow that they'll be there. Giles tells Buffy about his research on glory, which is so far unimpressive. Buffy compares the new big bad to Cordelia, which is fair. Fair
1: enough, yeah. Fair
0: Fair comparison, (laughs) all things considered. Then Buffy and Xander agree that Tara's nice, but otherwise indescribable, which makes present buying hard. And we're also just done with the subtext on the, we're saying Wiccan, but we mean lesbian thing, (laughs) right? right? No longer subtext, now just absolute text.
1: Absolute text, yes. Absolute
0: (laughs) text. This is the scene that I'm talking about when Mm -hmm. I talk about this episode. Yeah. It's great, it's well-written, it's beautifully performed, it's intimate, it's affectionate, and nothing happens for like a full three minutes.
1: Yeah, it's it's very slow in the story movements, which is fairly unusual for Joss Whedon, who tends to keep that story happen. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Xander suggests that Buffy work out some tension and we hard cut to a pitched battle between Buffy and Spike. But this is all just a part of Spike's rich internal life as he's having sex <laughs> with Harmony. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm not sure how I feel about the hard cut. I'm not sure how I feel about being so deeply in Spike's POV. Mm -hmm. I think that it works from time to time. But it's not something that I want to do on a recurring basis. And it's also not necessarily... It doesn't add anything to the story. We get this extended fight scene, which is a very well put together fight scene. But that scene would have worked just as well without seeing Spike's actual vision, right?
1: Well, I mean... I think we're hard cutting to this thing where Buffy is saying, you know, she needs to, to go out and, you know, whatever. But right as she says it, we cut to this shot of Spike and Harmony having to, or not Spike and Harmony, Spike and, and Buffy fighting, mm-hmm. which is, of course, not actually happening. But we are led to believe that it's actually happening. And then, of course, there's this incredibly sexual subtext in the fight, yes. which is not unusual for Spike and Buffy when they are fighting. And then we cut hard cut to Spike and Harmony, where she's, you know, he says, I'm just just thinking about you and mm-hmm. that's it um and uh and so i mean i find it to be like it's it's a short sequence it's okay i'm not a big fan of a hard cut to something that we are led to believe is actually happening only to discover that it's a dream sequence or that it's yeah. stuff like that generally not a fan of but it was quick short to the point and fine again not really advancing any story that we've <laughs> got going on but it was fine
0: this is, as we've discussed before, Joss Whedon's Achilles heel, mm-hmm. particularly when he's occupying both roles as writer-director. He just can't resist being a little more clever mm-hmm. than he should be, winking a little at the camera throughout the episode. Yeah. We get this hard cut here is is positively playful uh, with the, the cut back to Spike and Harmony. Mm-hmm. Then later in the episode, we get Willow arriving at the magic box with, am I late? Did I miss any exposition? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's maybe just a little too cute, isn't it's,
1: it? It's a little winky and this is the kind of thing that that happens when a television show has been around for a while it starts to kind of wink at its own um, as at its own tropes at its own you know stylistic mm-hmm. uh, things that it just does all the time it will sometimes wink at that because it's like from the writer's perspective, perspective from the perspective of anybody who has been deeply involved in the show it's like oh this again you know <laughs> um, and I can definitely understand that impulse in a writer to kind of wink like I know I know I'm doing this thing again Again, It's fine, you know. Um, but at the same time, like I don't know, it's not so bad. It's not too terribly winky. I think, but I, I can see it, you know, being a point where it's like, all right, no. enough. You know, I
0: think you're right. It's it's a very slight weakness, mm-hmm. and if you have to have a weakness, this is perhaps one of the yeah. least odious weaknesses it's a that cute you can have. One, yeah, but yeah, it's maybe a little too maybe a little too clever, clever. Yeah. Because
1: when our, when we have a strong emotional note, especially like we do in this episode, this is not, you know, the Zeppo. This is not one of these really, really cute episodes. That's all jokes and not a whole lot of like yeah, emotional depth. Where
0: you get a little more flexibility in the shape of the frame.
1: Exactly. This is, An episode that is all about that emotional resonance. And I think that you lose a little bit of that when you get jokey and winky and when you kind of poke a little bit at the walls that surround the reality of your story. In order for the emotional notes to carry through, we really need to believe in this story. And when Willow says something like, did I miss any exposition? You know, sure. That's the kind of thing that somebody might say in a circumstance like that, where they have you know endless staff meetings. Yeah, and, you no, know.
0: that one bothers me less honestly than yeah. the the cut away to Spike yeah. and Spike's little fantasy life because at least Willow appearing at the magic box and having that line mm-hmm. it advances the plot. Sure, it does what it needs to do. Something's happening there. Spike is irrelevant to the story. Mm-hmm. We don't need. We get a little bit. I, I think we get a, a
1: little bit of nice Spike in the story, and I actually like what we get. Um, but I like it better <laughs> when it's part of that's the story. Story that we're telling.
0: That's fair. And it's tough to complain about this episode containing extraneous material since yes. there's so little material of any kind, really. <laughs> if we cut Spike, we're left with really not enough to fill the 44 minutes.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I, I think that where we see Spike later in the episode, he is actually part of an ongoing story, and there I think that that works. Mm-hmm. But you're right, we're cutting away from what is not a terribly, you know, forcefully moving story in the first place, and sort of cutting what momentum we have by cutting back to Spike.
0: Yeah. Back <laughs> at the Magic Box, we're still talking about Tara's party when the Scoobies are interrupted by... Well, let's charitably call him a customer. Mm-hmm. When Tara and Willow arrive moments later, though, it turns out that he's actually Tara's big brother. I can see why she never mentioned him. <laughs> and it turns out that Donnie is not the only one in town. The entire family came down in the camper, including Tara's father and her cousin, Amy Adams.
1: <laughs> it is weird how conspicuous... Because when she did this episode, she wasn't Amy Adams yet. Nobody knew who she was. But there is something about Amy Adams that makes her so incredibly (laughs) conspicuous that in the moment, it's fine. But when you look back on it, you're like, hey, that's Amy Adams every time she's on
0: screen. Yes, because she is at all times 100% Amy Adams. And I want to be very clear and emphatic here. I adore Amy Adams. Yeah. She's weird in the Buffyverse. She
1: is weird in the Buffyverse. She doesn't feel like she fits. Yeah. She doesn't belong there.
0: (laughs) Tara's father gives her the creepiest dinner invitation ever. And then they leave. Tara and Willow roll their eyes about families, huh? And then get to work. Later, Buffy arrives home and runs into Riley, who is almost decent for almost a minute. Until he reminds her that he's keeping track of every kind deed he does and plans on trading them in for sexual favors. We are well past the point now where Riley's awfulness is textual. See also every previous episode of Dusted. Buffy squelches Dawn's plan to have dinner with her friend across the street, then Riley helpfully offers to call in the government to help with glory, then leaves in a snit because Buffy doesn't want government agents complicating matters. Riley. The absolute worst.
1: Yeah. People make fun of us because we call so many people the worst. But now I'm just going to call them the Riley. Yes. Yeah, I'm just going to be like, <laughs> he's the Riley. <laughs>
0: in our defense, every time we call someone the worst, it's because they are the worst to date. <laughs> right. I don't think we're going to get anyone worse than Riley.
1: Yeah. No, he's, he's pretty horrible.
0: He's awful in this scene. And I'm really starting to feel bad for Mark Blucas at yeah. this point. Because he's being given awful things to do and no humanity or vulnerability or interiority to help explain them it's just whiny yeah it's petulant it is the worst kind of passive aggressive childishness yeah and that is perhaps at its peak when in a snit he leaves buffy alone
1: yeah absolutely not
0: Um, not great stuff
1: yeah and i note too how much riley is absent from the episode about the family that you make
0: yeah, I find
1: that to be significant. Well,
0: again, another indication, as we've discussed in, in previous weeks, that by this point, we are not supposed to like Riley. Yeah. <laughs> that ship has sailed. Mm-hmm. It is now absolutely textual in the episode that he's, at the very best, given the most charitable interpretation, a problematic boyfriend for Buffy.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this you can see this as one of these circumstances where these are two people who just bring out the worst in each other and should not be together. And that separately... You know, we might all be fine. but Yeah, maybe. You know,
0: mm-hmm. And that's a self-awareness that perhaps will be returned to, revisited later in the run. Tara, meanwhile, finds her father in her room, being judgmental about her collection of crystals and Wiccan paraphernalia. And also, of course, as always, super, super creepy. Mm-hmm. Tara is turning 20 and something bad is coming. Something which Tara has been keeping secret. She has evil inside of her and she has to go home with her family where she belongs. After all, how will her friends react when they see her true face? So this is tying back to this one weird aberrant incident yes. with Tara.
1: Yeah, that we had last season. Yes. Where she screwed up the spell and hid um the, the ability to like see demons on the mm-hmm. map. And ever since then, we've not looked at it, we've not thought about it, we've never had a moment from Tara that felt particularly odd or, you know, foreboding. Now, all of a sudden, we have this this understanding that she is going to be turning into a demon when she turns 20.
0: Well, yes. The exact mechanics don't seem to be particularly well explored within mm-hmm. the span of the episode. She has to go home so that they can protect her. Right. Whether or not that means preventing her from unleashing this inner evil, whether or not it means keeping her out of the sight of, of the public, mm-hmm. one of the Odd things in this episode is that I'm not sure how old Cousin Amy Adams is supposed to be.
1: Oh right,
0: is she older than Tara? Is she supposed to be in her mid twenties? Has she gone through this change?
1: Possibly, because that's not my
0: reading of that relationship.
1: And yeah, I don't know, Cousin Amy Adams. Honestly, I have no concept of her, her role or her place in this family, or what it is that she's there to do, aside from being a woman who has either been subdued or has accepted that this is the way it's supposed to be. And I don't know. I never really got a whole lot of clarity on on what her narrative role is in this thing.
0: Yeah. My interpretation is that she has bought this familial narrative, hook, line and sinker, but that she hasn't yet reached this threshold that she is maybe a year, maybe two years younger than Tara? Yeah, maybe. Does that feel right to you in the space of the episode? I always
1: felt like she was older. I felt like she'd already been through it, that she had... Because her investment, her emotional investment in this being true feels a little desperate to me, and I may be headcanoning that. That may be something that I'm bringing to it. But the way that I've read it is that she has accepted this subjugation from the men in her family that oh, she has that accepted this true, yeah. as her fate. Um that she has already gone through whatever this process is, that she's gonna be the good girl who, you know, who supports her family and who doesn't allow the evil within to to come out. Um and because of that she's had to make a lot of sacrifices. Mm-hmm. So anybody who does stand up to that.
0: Right, challenges her narrative forces. Challenges her, to confront her, her, her own narrative weakness, if Tara's
1: yeah. right then Cousin Amy Adams has given up everything that she is to this family. So I always felt like she was somebody who had gone through whatever this process was. um, And because she had listened to the men in her family, you know, was saved Uh from that demon, you know, overtaking her or whatever. That
0: may well be the case. What I'm confused about is the conversation she has with Tara later, where she talks about how things are at home. Yeah, Where Tara's father and brother have to, in... One of the most disturbing turns of phrase in the entire episode, do for themselves. Yeah. I don't want to speculate too closely about what that might mean, about what that would look like if this had aired on HBO.
1: It means mac and cheese. It means they make their own damn food. (laughs) We can only hope
0: so. The problem is without definitive evidence. Yeah. This episode, particularly, I think, in 2016, a lot more than it would have done in the year 2000, it skews very dark very quickly.
1: Yeah, no, it does.
0: I think perhaps the landscape of television has just changed. Yeah. If this episode aired now, there's no way that there wouldn't be, I mean, even more so than there already are, creepy sexual overtones, right?
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: I'm not pulling that out of thin air.
1: No, I think that when this aired... That was the sort of thing that you could get away with because culturally we weren't engaging with as many creepy sexual overtones as we are now.
0: Particularly not in the context of network television.
1: Right. So this... It also may possibly be that that was as far as they could take that. They couldn't make that any more explicit on network television at the time. So at the time, if you saw that in there, if you read that in there, then maybe you were reading what was intended. But if you didn't, then you didn't really miss out on anything that was, you know, significant or explicit within the
0: episode. Right. And that's not to suggest that it isn't. You know, really grim and really dark, even if it is. Even
1: if it is just about mac and cheese. Yes,
0: (laughs) exactly. Even if it is just mac and cheese. (laughs)
1: That's still pretty dark. It is still pretty dark.
0: But the potential for even greater darkness, I think, is unavoidable. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that that hurts the story. I'm not sure that's detrimental to, you know, this, this somewhat thin, somewhat meager core narrative that we have with Tara and her family. But it does mean that Tara's essential. Passivity. That's the word that you used to describe Tara's role in this when we were discussing her before yes. the podcast started. Mm-hmm. Tara's passivity is exacerbated by the greater darkness that we might be inferring in this core story.
1: I think so. I think it really is. I mean, at the very least, we are definitely given explicitly that there is physical violence, you know, really? involved in, in this family relationship. So at the very least, we do know that textually is in there. Yeah. Um, but the, the shades of darkness that you can either see or not see, depending on how you choose to view that particular moment. Um, you know, I mean, it's all, I think it's all there. I think it's all intended. What do we
0: think of the depiction of Tara's family? Because, We don't go too far down the road, but there's a really unpleasant, you know, redneck, white trash overtone to the depiction of the family. And it's fairly subtle. It's really, you know, cousin Amy Adams might as well be wearing a gingham dress. Mm -hmm. They drove down in the camper. (laughs) We've got the full and manly beard on Tara's brother. Yeah. The episode draws upon stereotypes, archetypes, cliches of, you know, redneck families out there in the country doing God knows what.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Does that bother you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it. you know, it defaults to this urban versus rural stereotype that the people who live in cities are smart and the people who live out of the cities Mm -hmm. are are dumb, terrible, backwards people, which is, of course, as we all know, not the case. There are plenty of people who live in rural settings who are perfectly lovely and intelligent (laughs) and can hold their own. Um, But yeah, no, we are defaulting to a very particularly well-trod and somewhat thin cultural stereotype that feels, you know, it does. It feels a little flat.
0: Particularly for Sunnydale, California. Mm -hmm. California, I don't know my geography of the United States as well as perhaps I should, but California, quite a long way from Appalachia.
1: I think so, yes. It
0: seems like a weird reference to be drawing... At least drawing as specifically as they're drawing it. Which well, I guess isn't, that's why admit, they had to come out in camper. Terribly specific.
1: Right? Yeah. No, that's
0: <laughs> they came down in the camper from is, from... is this a slight on Oregon? Is that what this is? It,
1: it may well be. These may well be the, the Clive Bundys of their day, yes.
0: But the family depiction works for you as an actual story rather than just being a reference rather than just being a, a, a cliche.
1: It, it does feel a little flat. Um, yep. I, do, does the family really work for me? I don't feel them as fully realized characters in and of themselves, which I think is part right. of the reason why having three of them to represent so flatly this, this one thing, I feel like the dad alone probably would have been enough.
0: Well, no, because I was thinking exactly the mm-hmm. same thought, but we need, we need counterpoints. Mm-hmm. We need different perspectives on this matter, which is why we have cousin Amy Adams. Yeah, Mm -hmm. And Donnie gives, in the first instance, a more seemingly genuine, seemingly affectionate Mm -hmm. connection with Tara. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how much he adds. They are the problems to me. I think the father works better. I think we don't render him in quite as quite as broad stereotypical strokes yeah. and I think that's mm-hmm. to his benefit he manages to bring something that seems genuine and and creepy yeah, and unsettling he, he
1: speaks full you know standard grammatical sentences and doesn't have that <laughs> weird nice. accent that apparently his son has so I don't yeah. know if they just didn't move out to Appalachia until after <laughs> he'd already grown up or whatever. It but. is a
0: long drive. Donnie actually just developed that accent during the drive.
1: During the drive, yeah. yeah. Or maybe the
0: father lost the accent. Maybe they just listened to a lot of NPR in the camper.
1: It is entirely possible. That might
0: That'll have been That'll do that. You
1: get that NPR talk after a <laughs> while, yeah.
0: We cut from there to the generously intongued clown-faced demon who is chained up in Glory's closet. There's a sentence I never thought I'd have to say. It is a <laughs> Leach demon, and it tells Glory that Buffy is a vampire slayer. Glory gives the demon its mission, find friends, then kill the slayer. I like this scene with Glory.
1: Yeah, no, I think it it's good. works
0: for me. It's consistent with what we saw last episode, mm-hmm. but it does feel a little more, little more restrained. Mm-hmm. Perhaps she's not having to carry the weight of the exposition. She's not having to carry the the weight of introduction. Sure. She's already made a devastating first impression. So now we can have a little more nuance. I feel that picking up on our conversation last time, we have now turned the dial down from eleven to ten. And that's a good place for it to be.
1: I think so, too. I I like this. Glory's uh, role in this episode is incredibly simple. I mean, basically, her job is just to send the demons out after Buffy so that we can have that scene later. Um, And given that, I I almost feel like I would rather have Glory as an ominous absence in this. And demons can come from anywhere. Demons come (laughs) all the time.
0: Again, we can't cut stuff from this episode. We have barely (laughs) enough to fill the airtime as it is. We can't take anything out. I like Glory in this environment a lot more than I liked her in the warehouse because there is an innate dissonance Mm -hmm. between her and her surroundings in a way that there wasn't so much when she was in the warehouse challenging the monk Mm -hmm. having her here in this elaborate uh, dressing room walk-in closet whatever it is surrounded by femininity Mm -hmm. and a bound-up demon that goes a long way before she uh, before she even says a word that goes a long way to establishing this character and Mm -hmm. establishing that profound dissonance that works really quite well Mm -hmm. i like her as a presence the layach demons Don't really hang together though, do they? Oh my
1: god, they have the cutest little separating sores. Cutest little weeping
0: button noses. No, it's It's really quite foul. It's very effective makeup.
1: It is effective, it's totally gross. We are introduced
0: to them as the biggest badasses in town. When Spike hears from Harmony that Leoch Demons are going after the Slayer, he shows up to see them kill her.
1: With popcorn, yes. This is (laughs)
0: not a thing that he wants to miss because he's certain this is going to happen. Buffy takes care of them trivially.
1: They get dispatched fairly easily,
0: yeah. Xander manages to fight one of them off while it's invisible. <laughs> I feel as though we don't really deliver on all that was promised when it comes to the Leach demons. Uh,
1: no, but it's entirely possible that their reputation, you know, precedes them, it's that they have exceedingly good PR, and PR then when department. you see them live, it's something of a disappointment. I mean, that has been my
0: experience once or twice. They are the Peter Frampton. Yes, of exactly. demonic <laughs> At Tara's place, Willow is full of enthusiasm for a Scooby meeting and for the trying of the demon-detecting spell that Tara sabotaged before. Tara brushes her off and Willow leaves her to her books. This is a tough scene. Mm -hmm. When we talk about Tara's passivity, that is, I think, structural more than it is rooted in character. Mm -hmm. She's having a really hard time. That doesn't necessarily serve the movement of the plot, but every minor intersection, every little scene we get along that track is pretty good. It's pretty compelling. And in some cases, like this one, pretty upsetting.
1: This is really hard. I think the problem for me with Tara is that she is always... So insightful. She's mm-hmm. always so emotionally connected. She understands why Dawn is having trouble feeling on the outside of the Scoobies. She feels on the outside, but she doesn't blame anybody. She never gets angry. She's always the font of wisdom. So when you see her in a circumstance where she is, I mean, one of the great ways that you can show a character under stress is have them behave just slightly out of character. Yeah. That when people are under stress, that's when they start getting snippy in, in situations in which they ordinarily wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So to have Tara set up as so like emotionally connected and so incredibly kind always, even when Faith was Buffy and Buffy was being terrible to her. Yeah. Um, Tara was always, you know, really connected. It was never she about her. It was it. never she about was ego. Detuned. She was, yeah. yeah, she's always smooth through everything. So seeing her get kind of snappy with Willow for me is, you know, is a really big shock. And I think part of that, I It is this passivity with Tara is something that I think is the essential problem with this episode in, in general. And it was nice to have her even, you know, though she's being mean to Willow, like have her in a moment where she's not perfect, where yeah. she is somewhat snippy, where you know, where she's
0: not merely reactive.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. That's
0: the biggest problem that we get through the episode. Yeah. We'll pick up on that in just a few scenes time. Meanwhile, at the Magic Box, Giles has some updates about their research but Tara lurks in the training suite and casts a spell. They're all disoriented for a moment, then Tara retreats. Do you buy that Tara would cast this spell? Do you, A, believe that she is capable of of taking this action? And B, do you believe that the episode explores and articulates her desperation sufficiently that we understand her motivation here?
1: I believe that she is capable. Tara, with her... Wider understanding of the world, even in a moment that is desperate. And let's just, you know, remember her family came in like that afternoon. She hasn't really been pushed to the point where I feel like she would do something that desperate. And if she was going to, to put a spell over them, it would be so that they couldn't see just her. And I can see that spell misfiring to all demons. But there is no way in a million years. That Tara would put a spell on them that would make them blind to all demons, but I don't think that that was clear in the text. I think that her intent was to make
0: all demons. Got to stretch for it a little bit. My interpretation is that it was intended to be much more specific. It was supposed to be a Tara only blind or a Tara's demonic side only blind in a spell. Yeah, and it went awry. I didn't get that consistent with magic. Because It is absolutely imagine, consistent. I, I don't can't know why imagine we didn't make it in the text. I can a universe under which she Tara just makes them blind to makes all demons. them blind
1: to all demons, the yeah. things that are always trying to kill them. There is no way Tara would ever, ever do that. So if in this moment... Her intent had been, you know, make them blind to me, to this one side of me. And it ended up making them blind to all demons, yeah. you know, and that was was an accidental thing that that Tara could not have very easily foreseen turning into disaster.
0: Because Tara, as we know, is yeah. not as magically skilled as Willow.
1: She doesn't. Exactly. But I, th- I feel like we didn't get a textual confirmation that this was... Something that she had not intended, that it was gone nope, awry, right. that she just didn't see the ultimate, you know, um, consequence of it, which is something that I think Tara would have seen.
0: Indeed, if anything, and and I think you can whistle past this, but later when Buffy challenges her about the spell, she does back down. Mm-hmm. She doesn't say it was a mistake, it was an accident. I didn't mean to make yeah. you blind to every demon on literally the worst night that I exactly, could do that.
1: Exactly, yeah. We which which get... for Buffy is every night. There's that, no night that true. Buffy should be not able to see demons, <laughs> yes.
0: Riley, meanwhile, is drinking in Willie's bar, only that's not Willie. <laughs> a pretty girl named Sandy sashes up to the bar and Riley buys her a drink. If she looks familiar, that's because Sandy is the girl that Vampire Willow bit in the bronze during Doppelgangland. This is not the last time that we will see Sandy.
1: Okay, first of all, nice catch. Like I have never realized that before. <laughs> you I, that's know what awesome. it was? Yeah.
0: It's that the way she shot. Yeah. Is just. I don't know. It feels different. It doesn't feel like we're focusing on Riley. It feels like we're introducing no, her.
1: It does. It does. And I it, didn't
0: remember that yeah. it was from Doppelgangerland. I just went and looked her up and was like, oh okay that's she she's already that been in this makes show.
1: Sense yes. Yeah,
0: so that works quite nicely. Mm-hmm. I like Willie's as the desperate dive. Yes. We got to talk about Riley. <laughs>
1: Do we have to talk about
0: Riley? (laughs) Well, Sandy immediately shifts gears to the let's go someplace private part of the conversation. And Riley rejects her, partly because he's in love with Buffy and partly because she's a vampire, but only partly because he's in love with Buffy is my point. (laughs) And I'm not sure at the end of this conversation whether or not we are supposed to believe that Riley would have stayed true to Buffy, whatever that may mean, if Sandy had been a human girl.
1: Yeah, I think... I don't know. I don't know. Parsing all of Riley's motivations out is is (laughs) kind of just a nightmare activity because on the one hand, I would hope that because she's a vampire would be enough reason regardless of whether he's with Buffy or not. But also any girl because he's with Buffy should be pretty much off limits anyway. So Riley's thing is Riley's thing. I you know. I can't stand him. Everything he does makes me crazy at this point. So Mm -hmm. I don't even know if I can see him clearly. I think that I I just, it doesn't matter what he says or what he does. I am going to read it in the most negative way possible because he has just worked my last nerve.
0: I think we get a very nice perspective on Riley right at the end of the episode where Mm -hmm. Don says only losers drink alcohol Yes, and everyone looks at their solo cups, Mm -hmm. but they're at a party Yeah, and they're solo cups. I mean, there's beer in those cups. (laughs) Riley at the bar Drinking, I don't know. Scotch is that what he's supposed uh, to be drinking? Something,
1: some kind of tough, you know.
0: Sure. So some the the manliest thing. <laughs> the that manliest they have, thing right. that
1: they have. Beef eater. Yeah. That
0: I think is a very different kind of drinking, and mm-hmm. I don't think that it's intent uh, that it's unintentional. Excuse me, that we get that line from Dawn later in the episode.
1: Oh, may well I be. I never I never read back. it back that far,
0: but sure. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, Harmony comes home to Spike's crypt with lots of new outfits and some news about the Leach Demon and the killing of the Slayer. Spike sets off to witness the sporting event of the season, and we cut to Tara walking across the campus, bumping into cousin Amy Adams, who delivers... The strangest and best question mark line in the entire episode.
1: No, no. This is so great because it is both the least Amy Adams line ever (laughs) followed directly by the most Amy Adams line ever. It is, you selfish bitch. You don't care the slightest bitty bit for your family, do you? And I mean... The Selfish Bitch, hearing Amy Adams swear for me somehow was like...
0: Particularly in Buffy.
1: It, it, it is. It's like, you know, watching Hello Kitty fart. It's just the weirdest thing, you know? <laughs> It's oh,
0: take your word for that. A one. Real dissonance. But now we have no, an episode title, so that's good.
1: Right. <laughs> but then to follow it up with, you don't care the slightest bitty bit, and I was like, "There's Amy. That's you know, that's well, exactly who she and is." And
0: there's Joss. Yeah. Because I mentioned earlier the line about uh, Tara's father and brother having to do for themselves. Yes. Which feels like a very Firefly line. Yeah. It and does. there's a lot of Firefly. Infused through cousin Amy Adams. Cousin Beth, by the way. I know you're all writing emails to us telling her that her name is Cousin Beth. Cousin Amy Adams dialogue is infused with that firefly sense of Mm -hmm. that that's strangely slightly off kilter, but off kilter in a very non buffy way. That I think works beautifully. I think this is a very carefully arrayed Mm -hmm. line, and I love it.
1: felt weird to me i have to say it felt a little bit weird but i did enjoy it
0: and i like that she sees right through tara mm-hmm. yeah. i like that tara is textually an open book yeah just to everyone who looks at her it does make me wonder a little bit about willow buying tara's sudden brush off earlier mm-hmm. in the episode but yeah we need to get where we're going and it works well enough that it doesn't attract too much attention to itself in the magic box, the demons move unseen past the Scoobies, finally discovering Buffy in the training sanctum. She senses them, and they attack unseen. Buffy fights, while one of the demons attacks Xander, then knocks Willow clear across the room. In the training room, Spike comes in to watch, then, helplessly in love, joins the fray. Aww. Do you like this moment?
1: I love this moment so much. (laughs) Given that
0: you love Spike being in love with Buffy.
1: I love Spike being in love with Buffy. I love the look he has on his face. He's trying to enjoy it. He sees her getting beat up. And then he's like, he cannot even stop himself. He has to jump in and save her.
0: I went back when we arrived at this scene. I went back and watched him leaving the crypt when he gets the news from Harmony. And there really doesn't seem to be anything in his performance as he's leaving that that speaks to a desire to protect Buffy or a desire to really intervene yeah I think this does come on him at that moment
1: it does and I love the expression I love the way James Marsters plays it it is fantastic it's one of my favorite moments in all of Buffy it
0: gives us that (laughs) internal conflict that is so key to making Spike work and it's so interesting that the show at this point is going out of its way To give us the interiority, the internal perspective of a character who is fairly legitimately described more than once as a monster. Yes. Whereas we don't get that kind of interiority from Riley. Yeah. This is part of my thesis that Mm -hmm. the show at this point kind of wants us to hate Riley. This
1: is deliberately throwing Riley under the bus, yes.
0: It turns out, though, that Buffy can't see Spike either. In the shop, Tara arrives just in time to cancel out the spell, allowing Buffy to casually break the neck of one of the attacking demons in front of Tara's family, which is, it's dark. Yeah. It's the boot on the back of the neck is... Sure. Yeah, that's tough to watch.
1: Well, especially because these are demons that are supposed to be really, really difficult. Yeah,
0: that's part of the problem of the episode, of course, is that we're setting up this conflict, but we can't really follow through. Mm -hmm. So we have to have the demons drift through the shop ominously in... A scene that is genuinely disquieting. Mm-hmm. That feels I mean, I think it's
1: shot really not nicely. Not unlike
0: Hush. Yes, exactly. I was of, thinking of Hush. Yeah, a yes. use mm-hmm. of focus and perspective. The, the, the way in which the frame of the shot is constrained mm-hmm. is really well done. Yeah. Really well done. We're reminded throughout this episode, I think, that Whedon is a fantastic director.
1: Right. We, in we addition think of him as a writer because yep. he's such an amazing writer. But yeah. his directorial abilities are just amazing. Oh, yeah. He mm-hmm.
0: has a great a great skill with the camera yeah. in particular. And a great skill, of course, at eliciting the best performances from his entire ensemble, which I can fairly say, I think, he does within this episode. Mm -hmm. So we have the fight scene that is, unfortunately, a little bit perfunctory. Mm -hmm. The fighting of the invisible demons is pretty good. Though we have the question, not for the first time, whose POV are we in? Because whenever Buffy is on screen, the demons are invisible.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Which is only true from Buffy's POV. When we're out in the shop with Dawn and with Giles and with Willow, we can see the demons.
1: But we know that they can't see the demons. Yes. Right. So
0: it seems to be that when we get close to Buffy... When Buffy is on screen in general, in we have to question if that is true.
1: Yeah. I'm
0: going to be tracking that the next That's time we have an invisible demon. And sure. And I'm pretty sure we're, we're bound to have another invisible demon at some point. Oh, right? certainly. Yes. It's, it's just too good a monster <laughs> exactly. of the week. Why wouldn't you have an invisible demon every other week? Tara stammers an apology, explaining to Willow that she didn't want her to see what Tara really is. Tara's father tells them that all the women in the Maclay family have demons within them. Buffy observes that she could have killed them all. But Willow steps up to defend her. Tara doesn't want to leave, but her father is insistent until that is Buffy steps up and Dawn and Giles and the rest of the family. Oh, except Spike, obviously. (laughs) Spike would like it noted for the record that he doesn't care. Exactly. I love that. That is so, so good. I love the expression of family. Mm-hmm. I love the heartbreaking, the purity of the sincerity between Willow yeah. and Tara. Mm-hmm. That's so good. It's so simple. It's so direct. It's so unadorned. Mm-hmm. It absolutely works for me. This entire scene is the point of this episode.
1: This entire scene, too, is what I always remember when I remember this episode. It's why I love this episode. I think mm-hmm. the scene from the very beginning with the the demons coming into the shop through the fight, through Spike, through um, all of this stuff with Tara, and when, you know, they say, she's family, you know, you can go ahead and take her, but you'll have to go through me. That always makes me cry. It always does. <laughs> you and
0: how did know? we not love Dawn? Mm-hmm. Dawn's oh, no. stepping up. Yes. Dawn's... Relationship with Tara.
1: She's a hair puller.
0: I love (laughs) Love that. that. Dawn's relationship with Tara, with Willow and Tara both. Is one of my favorite things in the show. I
1: know, yeah, and it's I love fantastic. that it's, it's
0: articulated so effortlessly here. Mm-hmm. I completely buy it. I think Xander is great. We've talked mm-hmm. hardly at all about Xander through this episode, right? But good lord, this, this is our Xander.
1: This is the Xander that I yeah. have always loved, and that when I go back to the beginning of the of the series, I'm always shocked not to see him because yeah. this is the guy that I know <laughs> was in there the whole time.
0: Buffy articulates the theme of the episode, and Anya asks for some clarification on what type of demon. Tara is exactly and as noted before we have retconned the fact that anya wasn't really a demon that okay. anya was anya a human girl was
1: human for like 20 years and then was a demon for like 1100 years she identifies as demon <laughs> <laughs> she can use the demon bathroom That's who she is. I am perfectly fine with her, you know, having this this mix of human and demon and really identifying with the demon side. I
0: guess maybe maybe that's fair. That's it. All right. Mm -hmm. Spike sees through the deception, though, and punches Tara to prove that she is, in fact, 100% pure human. (laughs) I guess we could have figured that out by the fact that Buffy could see her. When she walked in,
1: sure. No, I think that that's also good. I I do like Spike in this moment, though, because hitting her hurts him. You know, literally more than it hurt her. No, that (laughs) is so. It's a nice. It's a nice little sacrifice for Spike. He proves his point. I like the way that he talks to the dad. You're a piece of work. I like you. You know. I mean, I love that whole thing.
0: Tara's father says that for eighteen years, her family has taken care of her and supported her, which is weird. Because that's the present perfect tense, which implies something that has been true and is still true on an ongoing basis. But as we know, Tara is about to turn 20. Mm -hmm. So that makes her 19. So which year of her life... Was she not cared for by her family?
1: The year that she first got her period because she's a girl and that's dirty and we must shame these (laughs) children. From the age of 12 to 13, we didn't care so much about you. Exactly. Age 12 to 13, we locked you in a
0: closet. (laughs) Finally, they leave, though not before cousin Amy Adams has what you might interpret as a minor epiphany, exactly what we were talking about earlier. Right. This idea that if Tara can stand up, and now that the truth has been revealed, of course, her entire... Narrative, her entire sense of herself.
1: Everything she sacrificed, has been everything she is. Has fallen away. Yes. I
0: really hope that she pauses the minute after she leaves the magic box and decides, no, I'm going to go off and become an actor. Exactly. I, I think I'd Amy like to Adams.
1: star in a Disney film. Yes.
0: <laughs> Maybe a co- someday I will be Lois Lane. Exactly. I will be the best thing about. Two Superman movies. Two really terrible Superman movies. But I will be great in those Superman movies. (laughs) I'm Amy Adams, goddammit.
1: Uh, That's exactly what I think happened. She stepped out, she said, I'm Amy Adams, (laughs) goddammit, and went on to have a lovely career.
0: At the bronze, the Scoobies celebrate Tara's birthday. Now that she's almost killed them all and threatened the safety of Sunnydale, she's definitely part of the team. She tries to explain the insect reflection joke to Anya. Which is, as we know, the blind leading the blind. Then she and Willow dance together. Tara apologizes, but Willow tells her that she's more proud and more in love with her than ever. They dance together as we cut to the credits. Yes. A touching, heartfelt scene. Mm -hmm. I love seeing this family together. And yes, even the way that it is shot when Riley shows up to intrude. Yes. Again. All the more evidence, all the more emphasis on how unlikable he is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. It's pretty great. Here's the problem with this episode. There's 10 or 15 minutes of great material. Maybe, let's be charitable, 20 minutes of plot stretched across 42 minutes. Mm -hmm. There's just not a lot here. And it feels as though both the... Tara and her family storyline and the Glory Sends the Demon storyline are B plots. They feel like yes. the lesser halves of an episode that should have a strong primary focus. Yeah. Spending what must be three or four minutes in the magic box talking about buying a birthday present for Tara and how nice she is. I mean, that's a great scene. It's cute, but it's not story
1: yeah it lacks the narrative momentum that we really are used to seeing from these episodes and especially from Joss Whedon
0: because we don't have that primary protagonist
1: right I think the problem here is that Tara is essentially a passive protagonist this is the Tara centric episode It is, I believe the only Tara centric episode that we are going to get throughout the run of Buffy Um, so we have this situation where she is caught between what she wants in her life and what her family is demanding of her and And in all of this, she doesn't really take action. She just quietly subdues herself to everybody. Mm -hmm. This is just kind of how she is. Um, She does, you know, do the spell, which is the one thing, the one action she takes feels essentially not Tara at all. And when
0: we cut from... Her passively responding, her her being reactive to her being active, it's a hard cut from one to the other without any supporting motivation, without any internal explanation. One of the problems here, I think, is that we so effectively alienate her from the Scoobies. She has no one to talk to. Right. If we'd had a scene of her talking to, God, even if she'd been talking to Miss Kitty Fantastica. <laughs> right. Even if it had been effectively an internal mm-hmm. monologue, then we would have had something. But we have alternatives. Let her talk to other characters who aren't, perhaps, as empathically connected, who won't, perhaps, interpret what she has to say mm-hmm. fully. Yeah. Why not have her talk to Anya earlier in the episode?
1: You certainly could. I think essentially what that comes down to is that we have her incredibly passive. I mean, even at the end, she's going to go home with her parents because they told her to until she decides not to because Buffy told her to. Buffy is the one who is standing up to her father, oh, And not Willow Tara. has to
0: tear out from mm-hmm. her that, that she doesn't want to go.
1: Exactly. So Tara, this would have been a wonderful opportunity for an internal antagonism for Tara. It is her 20th birthday. She believes that she is going to turn into a demon on her 20th birthday her taking that on and and having this this stress and her family coming in and saying hey you know this is going to happen your friends are going to see what you really are that kind of stuff i think is good and then let tara be the one who has to struggle with that Mm -hmm. let tara be the one and her family just there saying hey we could take you home with us right you know rather than her family coming in and being the active party rather than relying on Buffy to defend her having Tara defend herself I think then the action of trying to keep them from seeing her and because of her emotional state that magic goes awry and we get clear textual evidence that that was never her intent to to blind them to all demons I think all of that would have worked so much better and it would have given us some real movement in Tara's character we would have seen her go from being essentially subdued and passive to somebody who is active and who can can stand up for herself.
0: I think that's definitely one way of resolving the problem. I think there are probably other ways. I think there are other places where you can put the focus. There are other conflicts that you can draw out. There are other ways of approaching the spell, mm-hmm. for example. What's really missing for me though is Tara's presence in the episode. If we look at other Heavily POV'd episodes. If we look at the Zeppa, for sure. example, although mm-hmm. the Zeppa may be the worst possible example, <laughs> let's look at Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, mm-hmm. a Xander episode in which we are almost exclusively in Xander's POV.
1: Exactly. If yeah. we
0: go and look at a, a Willow episode, a heavy Willow Doppel- episode, Doppelgangland, Doppel- mm-hmm. for example, we're almost exclusively in Willow's POV. Here, this is a Tara episode. She is the one driving the action. She is the one who has, you know, stakes, who has conflict. But we're rarely in her POV mm-hmm. at all. And when we are, she rarely does anything.
1: Yeah, she's incredibly passive. I think that's the big problem with this episode. Well, that that's this episode, one of the Given the, big the problems. bones of this episode <laughs> and all of the stuff that I really love. I mean, again, Joss Whedon knows how to rip my heart out. You know, yeah, he hits and- those emotional notes and that's what I come to Buffy for. So, I mean, I really do enjoy this episode, but I do wish... That we had had Tara, that we'd given her an active place. She essentially is another damsel. You know, we're having another damsel moment for Tara, where she needs to be rescued. Exactly. Rather than rescue herself. Which
0: is bad enough anyway. We've talked before about Mm -hmm. how that's becoming a little tiresome at this point, and, and will again in the future, but... In those episodes, Tara isn't in the position of our primary protagonist. Mm -hmm. It's all the worst here when she's supposed to be driving the action. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's one big problem. While every incidental scene, I dare say, is just great. I don't think there's a bad line of dialogue. Yes, we get a little little winky winky. at the camera. We get a little clever. We get a little pleased with ourselves, and that's okay. I like every individual scene. It just doesn't amount to much. And then at the end of the episode, we cut away to the bronze, and everyone's having a wonderful time, and Mm -hmm. that's great. Why has no one called the police? Called the actual police? Tara's father is a monster. (laughs) And he's a monster if you look at this through the lens of the year 2000. Mm -hmm. If you look at this through the lens of 2016, if you acknowledge the darker potential aspects that there are to this story, where it's not just about domestic servitude but is about sexual slavery incestuous sexual slavery we
1: don't know that that's The case. I don't think that that was textual. And in the moment, you know, Donnie makes the threat that he will beat Tara down.
0: And it doesn't seem to be the first time that he's made that threat. But
1: in that moment, they didn't see him do anything. They really can't call the police. There's nothing they can call the police for.
0: Surely someone has to do something. Okay,
1: Calling Child Protective Services in case there are younger children still in that home, I think would probably be a a thing to do. And
0: if we can't really call the police, then that's fine. But we need some way of arriving at justice at the end of the episode. Episode, That's the and thing. And there is no we justice We have a villain that episode. has not
1: been dispatched, that is just sent off to go do evil elsewhere. Right. Yeah. And he
0: is a human monster, which, yeah. yes, places him outside of Buffy's area of expertise, certainly Buffy's area of responsibility. But we've handled human monsters before. Right. And we've generally managed to find some way, at least, of... Of evoking that sense of justice at the end of the episode. Look at how we've dealt with Ethan Rain, for example.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would have actually really enjoyed a hint that Cousin Amy Adams is about to just deliver SmackDown on these people, that she was going to pursue yeah, some sort of justice. I was looking really
0: hard to see that epiphany that I talked about. Yeah. It I would don't have been think nice. it's there. I don't think it's there. And I think the implication of that is that it doesn't matter what the truth mm-hmm. is, the story is more important. If Cousin
1: Amy Adams didn't go home with them. You know, yes, if but even cousin... that
0: wouldn't be justice.
1: No, but it would be something. It would show that something had changed it and that would, they weren't right. allowed to just go back to their lives and continue horrifying all of the women in yes. this family. It yeah. would be
0: better and I would like it more, but I would still be frustrated yeah. that... Tara's father gets to leave town because
1: there's no justice, and will
0: no spoilers. I guess never be mentioned again. Yeah, we're just never going to deal with that. And that, well, maybe he
1: saw his insect reflection.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Is hugely problematic. You know what? Something like that, some kind of self awareness spell. If we'd brought in some kind of of secondary thread through the episode, where instead of the insect reflection being used as a joke, yeah. Or, or being used merely as a joke, it did actually have some applicability to the story. If we could have forced upon him some moment of humility, yep. if we could have done something,
1: yeah, to something earn to earn a sense
0: of justice at the yeah. end of the episode, and honestly, if that had consisted of him stepping out of the magic box and running into the last remaining Liach demon, yeah, I don't think it I would have, have been upset by heart. that
1: you know wouldn't have broken my heart it's a little marrow really sucking dark. Is just about what that guy deserves
0: really dark in yeah. 2000
1: mm-hmm.
0: really dark in 2016 well
1: yeah really dark when we're we're more accustomed to reading in a, a much darker you know read to those right, subtle the changing cues. landscape of modern yes, television exactly. yeah. mm-hmm. it's
0: tough and i'm not sure that i find that to be forgivable okay i'm not sure that between Tara's essential passivity and the lack of any resolution whatsoever Mm -hmm. that I'm comfortable even calling this a competent piece of storytelling (laughs) because it fails two of the major hurdles that any story has to clear
1: no I think I think you're right for me I like it because it tells the emotional story that I think it sets out to tell and it intends to tell and I like that but you're right from a plot perspective those are big glaring holes so where on our big list of every Buffy episode ever would you place this (laughs)
0: I'm, as you've heard, Mm -hmm. a little critical of this episode. Yeah. I do want to emphasize how much delight this episode brings me, how much I enjoy all the interstitial scenes. Riley is the worst, but that's intentional. Everyone else is great. Not just good, but great. This is fantastic Xander, fantastic Anya, Mm -hmm. who is a problematic character. We get good Spike, we get reasonable one note but reasonable harmony Mm -hmm. we get some of my favorite giles some of my favorite buffy Mm -hmm. these relationships are what draw me to buffy too the philosophical episodes delight me Mm -hmm. but the reason that i care about these characters is because of these specific relationships not just the relationships that these characters share Mm -hmm. but this particular version of all of those relationships dawn steps up dawn is great there's a lot to love Unfortunately, it's barely a story. Mm-hmm. Tara and her family should have been the B plot to another exploration of family. Or should have
1: been given the weight that an A plot deserves. Should, yes, Absolutely, either of those I, options. I would, would have, have been rather great. seen it as an A plot. Have Glory not be here at all, and have demons just show up. Because let's face it, demons could just show up all the time. That, but
0: yeah. we have no A plot here, and the episode suffers mm-hmm. for it. Particularly when we don't resolve what we is our resolve- primary B plot.
1: Exactly. Yes.
0: That's really tough Mm -hmm. and i try to find some measure of consolation hoping that amy adams has an epiphany the moment she leaves the magic box but let's face it she doesn't but if you have to headcanon that
1: then it's not in the text yeah Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. so i find that really difficult i find that really challenging to my understanding of what a story should be and it lacks the one thing that we generally rely on whedon to give us which is consequence yeah there's no consequence to any of this this episode is practically the definition of an inessential episode of Buffy. You could
1: lift this right out of season five and never miss it. There's nothing in this episode, you know, with the exception of like some clarification on Spike's arc through his love for Buffy. Repetition
0: of Spike's arc for Buffy. There's nothing new there, Mm -hmm. which is what makes the dream sequence a little less worthy than mm-hmm. it than it would otherwise be. We're yeah, not giving new enough. information. We're just exploring something that we, we established perfectly well in the previously on Buffy the Vampire Slayer segment at the beginning of the mm-hmm. episode. So for me, for all of these reasons, it has to slide down the list. That said, it's never going to go terribly low on the list because it is still great. Yeah. And I do still enjoy the moment-to-moment moment of it. Mm-hmm. And frankly, that one line from Amy Adams buys it, I don't know, five spots on the list. <laughs> even on its worst day. So where would you put it? So for me, I'm looking at the high 20s. I'm looking choices, enemies. I think Prophecy Girl is is the lowest. I think that's as far down the list as it can go. Mm-hmm. So maybe right below Prophecy Girl, right above the Dark Age. I don't think I can place it any lower than 30 on the list. Five points higher than that, maybe somewhere okay. within that range. What about you?
1: Um, I actually have it a little bit higher. I would have it around Band Candy, uh, Buffy, versus oh, okay. so really, Buffy versus Dracula. I think
0: this really is better
1: than Buffy versus Dracula. I think really
0: just a little higher, just a
1: little bit higher. Um, so I would put it kind of right in that territory. I think that it's. I like what it does. I like that it it brings Tara into the Scoobies. I wish that Tara had been more active. I wish we hadn't damseled her as much as we continually do with Tara and want to see her more active. Um, and uh, so, I mean, that I kind of miss. Um, but overall, I feel like it manages to land the emotional notes very effectively. And that is not an easy thing to do. So even though it does kind of cheese out on consequence, which is something we almost never see. From Whedon, Whedon always follows through on the consequence. Um, I I really, I like it. I like it a lot. I think that the the moment to moment of it is pretty brilliant, um, and it makes me happy. So I I have it right up there between Band Candy and Buffy versus Dracula.
0: Buffy versus Dracula is not an inappropriate point of comparison, Mm -hmm. and that's two points higher than Helpless, which is also not an inappropriate point of comparison. Helpless is a super problematic episode. That leaves us with an emotional resolution yeah. that we like so Very much. Very similar. We can almost forgive it its mm-hmm. faults. So let's take Helpless then as the direct point sure. of comparison. Sure. Do you find the plot of Family more or less problematic than Helpless? And do you find the emotional resolution more or less affecting than Helpless?
1: Oh, God. Because, That's of course, tight without call. Helpless,
0: we don't get. Giles and Buffy at the beginning of this episode
1: exactly, exactly. it's not quite
0: that mature sophisticated relationship mm-hmm.
1: oh. so for me I would put a higher than helpless
0: a step maybe, higher you
1: would put a step lower I
0: would maybe put it a step lower but you know what I'm I'm willing to okay. accept that I'm finding this episode more <laughs> problematic than it necessarily deserves uh-huh. so let's can we compromise there? Put it in at 27 right above Helpless.
1: 27 right above Helpless. Sounds good.
0: Which is an oddly low spot on the list for, for an episode O'Heden. that contains so much
1: yeah. that is
0: just delightful. Yeah, But no, it's this got is problems. where we are. It's and if we're problems. judging it as a story, yep. that's where it has to go on the list. So that's 27 right below. What's my line? Part one and part two and right above Helpless. We'll be back on Thursday with our thoughts on episode six of season two of Angel, the painfully named Guys Will Be Guys, G-U-I-S-E, you guys, in which Wesley subs in for Angel while Angel finds himself out in the woods.
1: Out in the woods. Yes, that's going to be fun. Then next Monday, we'll be back with episode seven of season five of Buffy Fool for Love. Which is like my favorite.
0: It's Fool for Love.
1: It's one of my favorites of all time, in which Buffy turns to Spike to teach her a thing or two about how you kill a slayer.
0: I don't want to spoil it. And we certainly haven't had the discussion yet, but we're probably looking near the top of the list for that one, right?
1: Oh, my God. I cannot even. (laughs) I cannot even with this. I am so excited about this episode.
0: So that's Guys Will Be Guys on Thursday and Fool for Love next Monday. Actually, next week. Yes. Is going to be a
1: blast. Next week is Fool for Love and Darla, and I'm not even going to with you guys. You guys have got to watch both of those side by side. If you don't watch Angel right now, just watch that one episode while you watch Fool for Love. You will thank me.
0: And then head on over to the forum and give us your feedback (laughs) on all these episodes. That's forum.storywonk.com. Until next time,
1: I'm Alistair Stevens And I'm Lonnie Diane rich and this is Dusty. Arrgh!